Well, if you have with you a Bible, if you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 12, uh, if you do not have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And, uh, and if you don't have one at home, uh, we would love for you to take that Bible home as a gift. Uh, we're in a series uh, through Romans, um, uh, two, uh, two sermons per chapter, at least that's our goal. And uh, we broke this, um, this week up uh, at verse 8. And, uh, and that, uh, that's not going to happen, okay? <laughs> and so uh, we're only going to go to verse 3 today, and, uh, and so that'll give a lot of work next, uh, next week. You'll understand uh, in, uh, in a moment. Uh, but uh, we are um, thrilled to be in this book. I want to ask you to pray with me uh, as we get started in His Word. Father in heaven, we uh, are grateful uh, for your incredible love for us and the mercy that you pour out. Your Word tells us... Um, God, that you do amazing things with weak people, Um, that you do amazing things with people who are burdened and pressured and distracted. Uh, And God, when when um, when we all come in this place and this is true today, it's true right now. uh, God, that every single one of us has a very particular pressure, a burden um, that if we spend any time thinking, uh, our mind drifts right back to that pressure or that burden. And God, we pray, Lord, this morning, at least for this time, that you would help us to see uh, the supremacy of Jesus Christ and that you would help us uh, to long to hear your word and to lay aside that pressure, even for a moment, uh, so that we can hear from you. So would you be our teacher, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You know, uh, when I was a kid, uh, there was uh, sort of three things that I wanted to to be, I wasn't sure which one it was. It was either an architect, a lawyer, or a doctor. And um, uh, but I always was really kind of uh, compelled to be a lawyer, simply because I, I I think in in points and sort of one thing after another, after another, after another. But I had a problem growing up, and that was I had a terrible um, problem stuttering, and I just couldn't kind of grasp how I could ever have an occupation that would that would uh, that would ask me to talk for a living, and uh, and you know lawyers, you 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 need to be able to talk, and so I thought, well, that's probably not going to happen. But I loved even to watch um, sort of court um, cases, and um, and there's always one part of a court case that was always um, stirring. In fact, it still is, and it's near the end. It's sort of a crowning moment at the end of the trial, where each attorney, as part of their closing arguments, finishes up their burden of proof, all of their evidence, and then they say, therefore, I move that you find this defendant guilty or not guilty. And um, like it, it, the emphasis of the words of each of these attorneys typically is on the words guilty or not guilty. They do this for effect, but when you look at the most pivotal word of what they're talking about, it's the word therefore. Because the word therefore is the connector in between the evidence and the appeal. What they're doing when they're saying therefore is is sort of that flashing neon arrow that's pointing back to the foundation of evidence that should inform actions and thoughts and how this should be decided. But you and I, we use the same thing every day as well. You don't have to go to a a, a court trial to hear the word therefore being used. You've probably already used it today. We use it all the time as a device in our own conversations with each other in order to anchor our appeals to evidence. 
For example, all right, school started, and so homework's, well, homework's uh, at home, isn't it? And, uh, and, uh, and so we come home, and, and, and I say, hey, have you done your homework? Well, no. Well, you need to do your homework. That's an appeal. And all depending on the mood of, 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 our, of our boys, um, that's, that's met with um, differing uh, reactions, right? And so typically, when that doesn't work, you need to go do your homework, there's, there's, there's some evidence that you try to build beforehand, and then you connect it with therefore. And so, you know, like, you know, if it's really bad, then you all, you, you, you know, you go all the way back to, listen, you know, there's college, if you want to go to college, you need to do this, or if that doesn't work, you know, that, that's so far away, well, you're on the soccer team or the basketball team, and you have to have these kind of grades in order to stay on the team, and so therefore, you need to study. We do this all the time. If of course, it would be weird if someone did it in the lobby, but it could happen. But if you were walking by and all of a sudden you heard someone say, you need to marry me, you know, well, like that would be kind of an odd thing without any background. In fact, if it was somebody that you didn't know or that, and that he didn't know and he's saying it to somebody else, well, there's, there's no evidence, there's no foundation upon which that appeal can rest. And so it's unfitting. However, if you found out, though, that they've been dating for several years and, and, and it's sort of time and, and, and he's been asking multiple times and, she, you know, you know you, therefore, you need to marry me. We use this all the time. Jesus used this in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. He preaches what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He went up on a mountain. He started preaching. We call it a Sermon on a Mount. And, uh, and at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after he's listed sort of his value system for his kingdom and what's going to take place and what he's building, he finishes his sermon and then he says this, Therefore, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And so it's no surprise that when you get to Romans chapter 12, Paul is shifting. He's turning a corner in the book. For 11 chapters, he has sought to describe the gospel. To, to explain the mercy of God that was poured out for you and me by dying for us. And he's traced all the way back to our sinfulness and all the way back to God's sovereignty and salvation and how we're justified and how we're made right with him. And now he gets to the last five chapters of the book, starting in chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, therefore. He's about to make a shift. And what he does for the last several chapters and for the rest of our study in Romans will be, how do you and I go about practicing the gospel? How are we supposed to live our life in response to believing what this says in chapters 1 through 11? And desiring to anchor our behavior to evidence that's more substantial than our current mood that day. This is what he says. Chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, what's the next word? Therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so a few points if you want to take notes. If not, you can. there's three of them. Okay? The first is this, is that our behaving 
is to be built upon God's mercy. Now, when I talk about behaving here, what I mean is our Christian life. In response to what we've heard, how we're supposed to go about living our life and practicing this Christian life, our behavior is all to be built upon the mercy of God. He says it this way, I appeal to you, therefore, on the mercy or by the mercy of God. I think it's, fan, it's fascinating to me that he just can't get away from it. He's about to shift focus, and yet he takes one last attempt to drag our attention back to the mercy of God that was found in the gospel. The mercy, if you remember, that starts in Romans chapter 1 with creation, where God looks at us and he says, look, I created you for glory and you rebelled against me. And our rebellion is so, is so, is so abundant that what it says from chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and even into chapter 4 is that, is that our heart, like one of the greatest apologetics to the fact that our heart, something's wrong internally, not just externally. We oftentimes think before coming to Christ that there's this external problem and we need to look internally for a solution. The Bible says actually there's an internal problem and we need to look externally for the solution. The external was Jesus, that he came from heaven to earth to be our savior. But if you think about this fact, it just bears witness to our fallenness and it's this. Have you ever noticed that if you drift in anything, you never drift towards health. If you ignore your marriage, your marriage does not improve. If you ignore your friendships, if you ignore your work, if you ignore your physical body, if you ignore your mind, you don't drift towards places of greater maturity, greater health, greater love, greater faith, greater affection. We drift away from God, not to God. And so then what we're told is the mercy of God came in the form of Jesus. And Jesus came and he lived a righteous life. And he died on a cross here on the earth. He was buried in a grave and he rose from the dead. And we read this in chapter 5. Well, then you get to chapter 6, 7, and 8. And he's wanting to talk about the mercy of God in justifying us. We sang about that. The word justify. You justified me. And what that word means is made righteous, declared righteous by God. You see, some of you, you forget about the mercy of God and you are so focused on your behaving for God, then what takes place is this, is that when you have a bad day, you think God looks through the clouds and looks at you and goes, oh, they're really having a hard day. Not so righteous today. But what the gospel says, what Romans 1 through 11 says, is that when God wants to look at your righteousness... He doesn't look at you. He looks at his son who's sitting right next to him, whose righteousness is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, whose righteousness that when we had faith in Jesus, his righteousness was literally wrapped around you. And so we looked at chapter 6, 7, and 8 of the mercy of God to say, you know what? Your righteousness is established forever in heaven because Jesus is never going to change and he's there. He sees you if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, as innocent before Him. And then he talked about the mercy of God in literally calling you to faith by His sovereignty in chapters 9, 10, and 11. So now we get here to this amazing place, and Paul, he, he wrestles our attention back. He knows that our typical 
quiet time is, let me find something in this book that I can work on today, that I can do today, some practical thing that I can, I can put into practice in my life. And so what he does is he says, I'm going to wrestle all of those affections. And I just want you to think of this. Everything I'm going to tell you to do is based on the mercy of God. And if you ever disconnect those two, which is our typical end, is problems happen. You see, Paul understood. He knew that we tend to separate our behaving and our believing and then walk around wondering why our behaving seems so sporadic and so cold and so heartless and so fruitless. See, so many of us, we wonder why this takes place. And so he says, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And so just by way of just illustration, right? You have two words. You have believing, right? To where we think, okay, this is chapters 1 through 11. I'm supposed to believe something. And in believing that I'm going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and a lot of us think, okay, now that I'm in the family of faith, now what I need to do is I need to behave. I need to grow. And oftentimes what we do is we separate these two things, this believing and this behaving. And what he's saying is this, is that he says, I appeal to you therefore on the mercy of God to start doing something. And so anytime we as people seek to divorce these two things, then what happens is this, we become moralists. I'm going to show you that we actually place ourselves back into a different kind of prison. So what Paul does here, he goes, I'm not going to let you do that. I know it's your tendency. And every time that you forget about the mercy of God, you start trying to be good people instead of godly people. And so what he does is he takes our believing and our behaving. And he says, what I'm going to do before I tell you to do any one thing throughout the entire book. And he's going to tell us to do a bunch of stuff in this book is he says, I am going to attach these things so literally you cannot separate one from the other. This is so critically important because if you think about, it's like if you've ever been to an art gallery, I'm not an artist, but my mom is, and so when she's in town, we go to art galleries. And when we go to art galleries, it's interesting to me, you look around, they have all these wonderful lights, and they position all the lights specifically to enhance the beauty or to highlight the beauty of the art. And what he's saying is this is exactly what God did. He saved the people and then called that people to live in such a way that magnifies his mercy. And so if you look, right, where we'll look at next week, over in verse 9 of chapter 12, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. I mean, we just, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not actually counting. There's probably 15 things, different things that we're supposed to do. And that's just one paragraph over five or six pages of scripture of things that he's going to tell us to do. But he's going to start here. And this is where we need to go every single week that we go throughout the rest of Romans. Is we need to come back to 12.1. It says now, in view of the mercy of God, in view of what we're believing about Jesus Christ, how do we do this? 
See, the fact is, is none of these five chapters and any instruction in it will seem possible or even probable if our heart is not tied to a foundation that is deeper than our mood or ability. And what if you don't feel like being hopeful in tribulation? Do you get a pass? Or is the mercy of God something that's such a resource that actually motivates hope even during tribulation? And so, a few applications for this first point. The first is this, is as we live, let's remind ourselves of God's mercy. Right? Let's remind ourselves of God's mercy. We live in such a distracting world. It's like white noise all over the place. Just all the time, we are distracted from one thing to the next to the next. And so the application here is simply this, find ways to remind yourself of the mercy of God. You know, last week we sang a song, Come Thou Fount. And there's a little sentence in there, right? A guy came up to me last Sunday, and he goes, I'm, I go, I'm really embarrassed. He goes, I've sung this song my whole life. Now I have kids, and they're asking, and I don't even know what it means. We, we sing it all the time. Here I raise my Ebenezer. He goes, what is an Ebenezer? I've been raising it my whole life. I don't even know what it is. I mean, most of you, right? I mean, how many of you have been raising Ebenezers? I don't know. Well, we're going to raise it, though, aren't we? We should probably define those when we sing them. But, but the word Ebenezer simply means stone of remembrance. It sort of goes back to multiple places in the Old Testament, um, such as when God's people crossed over the Jordan River, and God says, there's 12 tribes. I want one person from each tribe to get a big rock from the bottom of it. I want you to bring it out, and I want you to stack them up. I want you to make a monument of rocks a stone of remembrance, so that later on, years from now, you can walk by and you can go, you know what? Man, that's right. We forget about the mercy of God, what he did and how he helped us. So we see it and we go, man, I remember, I remember. But it also says so that your kids who weren't even born when this happened, they're going to look and go, hey, dad, what's the deal with that big set of rocks? It's not anywhere else around there. How come all those rocks are piled up there? Well, let me tell you, one day this is what happened and this is what God did. And so let's, I just exhort you, right? Find ways to remember. Put a note in your car or a mirror or on your mirror reminding you of God's mercy is the reason for your believing and your behaving. And the second thing I would just exhort is this, is that as we exhort, let's remind others of God's mercy. Sometimes as friends or in particular as parents, we exhort on the basis of a different kind of authority. We say something like, just do it. And this makes good kids, but not godly kids. And that would be failure. You see, because there's a lot of good people, the Bible says, are thinking that they're going to go to heaven, but they're not. Because they're not perfect morally. Only Jesus is perfect morally. And so what I would just exhort is this, let the mercy of God and not your authority as parents be the primary anchor to your instructions to your children about their attitudes and actions. So when they've got an attitude, you say, stop talking to me like that. Well, Because I'm a parent. What if we backed up a little further to something more important than you're a parent to, you know what, because this is what God has made available to us. And all of a sudden we can anchor our instructions, our appeals of how we should live And we can anchor them to something that's deeper than their mood or their ability 
to perform. And so our behaving is, should be built upon the mercy of God. The second thing is this, is our behaving is to be an expression of trust and worship. It's supposed to be an expression of trust and of worship. So he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. And then he tells them to do something. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is, this is your spiritual worship or your act of worship. You've got to ask the question, okay, well, what's a living sacrifice? Because we're supposed to present our body as one. So it's really important we know what that is. Well, to know what a living sacrifice is, you have to know what a dead sacrifice is. (laughs) And in the Old Testament, what happened was this, is that God promised that there would be one that would be born of woman that would eventually take away the sin. But until that one was born, who was Jesus Christ, God installed the sacrificial system so that if you sinned, which we all do, we would come to the tabernacle or the temple with an animal. And it wouldn't be pet day. Like if we still did this today, there would you know, be a lot of animals around, but it wouldn't be a happy day because all those animals would eventually die and it would be really sad. You know? but, but, but the fact is, is what you would do is, is this is what God said. He goes, there has to be an, a covering, an atonement of that sin. There's a separation. And so believing me and what I'm going to do through my son and foreshadowing that event, he says, this is what we're going to do. Until that happens, you're to bring an animal. When you sin and you come and you're going to put your hands on that animal and the priest is going to come and it's going to kill that animal. And then that animal that is now dead, that body is going to be placed upon the altar and burned. So the dead sacrifice didn't have an opportunity to say, you know what, this, this fire is really hot and this altar, you know, I'm afraid of heights. And so I think I'm going to get off of this altar. No, what we're told is that, is that it was a dead sacrifice. Now, we don't need to improve upon this because Christ came and he paid for sin once for all. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So the price has been paid. And so what Paul's asking for is not that you and I figure out a way to deal with our sin. That's Jesus Christ. We've, we've already covered that in 1 to 11. Now he's talking about how do we go about living our life? And what he's talking about here is simply this. When, when he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, what he's saying is choosing to yield to God's plan, even when his plan, which you could liken as the altar, is hard and difficult to understand. That when you are seeking to do his will, and it becomes very uncomfortable, where integrity becomes uncomfortable, maybe even persecuted. We're honesty, we're compassion, we're fidelity to your marriage. Where these things become very difficult and sometimes hard to understand. We look up to God and we go, okay, God, in view of your mercy and what I understand about your will, I have the ability to jump off this altar and do things my way, but I'm not going to. No, as an act of worship and trust to you. I'm going to say, I don't get it, but I'm going to follow you here. So there's a lot of, a lot of examples of things that I could share. Let me just share four of them, right? A living sacrifice is a discouraged spouse who can abandon a difficult marriage 
but conscience of God's mercy and the will of God, chooses to remain faithful as an act of worship, first and foremost, to God. A living sacrifice may be a student who can cheat on a test, prove their grade, but conscious of the mercy and will of God, chooses honesty as an act of worship, first and foremost, to God. It's a person who can soil his or her heart with lust, but conscious of the mercy and will of God, chooses purity as an act of worship to God. It's a carpenter who, mindful of the mercy and will of God, seeks to worship God, not by carving little hidden crosses underneath the cabinets, but by being honesty, even, honest even when honesty is not as profitable because we're doing it as an act of worship to God. See, every single thing he's about to tell us to do, what he's saying is this. It's not only going to require that you remember mercy, but it's also going to require that you trust me because you're not going to understand all these things. Some of them won't seem logical. It's not going to feel the right thing to do. There's one of them that says, don't repay evil with evil. Well, go try that on, right? Have someone slap you and see what you want to do next, you know? And so when our mood and our ability do not align, what are we going to do as Christians? And so what Paul's doing is he's setting a foundation for our application to the gospel by saying, first of all, you better remember God's mercy. And second, it's an act of trust and worship to God. And so the application for number two is this, is let's yield to God's will as we remember his goodness. We remember his goodness. We talked about this last week, but when temptation has you questioning the goodness of God's plan, we implore you to remember Romans 8.32. It says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What this says is this, is that if you can trust God's heart with your soul in Him sending His Son and crushing His Son on your behalf, can you not also trust Him with your money or your sexuality or your relationships or your thoughts or your entertainment or whatever else it is? You see, sometimes when we're confronted with the realities of life and God's over here saying, well, this is what my word says. I created you. I know how you're supposed to thrive. Your heart is bent, though. It's bent towards the wrong thing. And so now you're in this situation and we look and we look at that instruction. We think, man, that doesn't even look like appealing. It's not even what I want to do. Much less have the energy or the motivation to do it. What are you going to do? Well, what he's saying is this. You must train your eyes to look back upon the mercy of God as the evidence that when you cannot understand his hand, you can trust his heart. Jesus Christ is for you. There has never been another person that has been better to you than him. And so we can trust him. The third thing is our behaving is dependent upon the Holy Spirit's power. Our behaving is dependent upon the Holy Spirit's power. He says in verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. The word conform literally means to be squeezed into the mold. 
So if you've ever played with Play-Doh, you know, and you got all this Play-Doh, and all of a sudden you have stamps, or you have things that you can press into it, you can pull it off, and you can see the impression within the Play-Doh. That's what he's saying to us. He goes, look, this world, it's, it's like a vice. It's a press. And he goes, don't allow yourself to, to be pressed into its mold. That as believers, we can live life differently. We're operating with a different set of resources. And then he tells us how. He goes on and he says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, one of the saddest things about our life is that we love prison. You say, oh, yeah, I've never been to one. Eh, actually, you have. You've been to two. You may have been more than two. I know we've all been to two. Because the Bible says we've been to two. See, what it says is this, is too many believers, they get released from the prison of their immorality, meaning being bad. And what so many people do is Jesus unlocks that door, he forgives us, and we're set free. And we go, you know, I don't want to go back to that one, but I do, look at this, now this prison over here looks really good. And we come over here, and this is the prison of morality, we put ourselves in and we lock the door and we're like, now I'm going to use my energy and my strength to be good instead of to be bad. There's an entire church in Galatia that was doing this very thing. And Paul wrote to them. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Look, guys, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's freed you from immorality. Don't go and prison yourself by giving yourself a bunch of rules of things to do. And there's a lot of people that will look at Romans 12 through 16, all these things we're supposed to do, and will go, all right, here we go. Let's white knuckle these things. Let's get them done. And you can't. You can't do any of them. Unless it's an overflow of life of having our heart affixed to the mercy of God, trusting the heart of God, and being filled and controlled by the Spirit of God. You see, the offer Jesus gives is to be transformed so that what we love to do and what we want to do is what the Bible says we ought to do. You see, this is ultimate freedom. This is the freedom that's going to happen in heaven. When you want to do the right thing. And you only want to do the right thing. I mean, some of you are really discouraged because you sinned last night. I want you to know that a more substantial problem you have than the fact that you sinned last night is your heart wanted to. What are you going to do next week when it wants to again? All right, white knuckle it, here we go. I got 40 years left on this life. I think I can hold on. No, you can't. So he says, no, we're going to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. You see, so many people think that our social problems, personally and culturally, will evaporate if people could just grow in their knowledge. Education is is the key to everything, we would be told. Now, it's very important, but it's not the key. We know this because we've, we've, we've tried. We say, you know what we should do? You know, we've got this obesity problem, so let's tell people, like, this is how people get obese, and if they do, then they'll stop eating those things, right? Then we've got commercials, and you've got 
one pound hamburgers dropping from the sky and landing on the, on the table, you know, and, and but why? Why? Because knowledge does not help our heart. It doesn't. If we want something, we're still going to do something. Not that long ago, I was at the hospital. <laughs> I'm out parking the car, and I walk in, and I look over, and I thought, well, that's, you know, it'd be rude to take a picture. But I'm looking, and this is clear that knowledge doesn't fix everything, because you had three doctors and a nurse smoking. <laughs> like, they know better. They know that's not healthy. Well, why do we do that? Well, because the heart wants it craves. It's a physical need. What about something like racism? We have all this racial tension in our culture and our communities. You think, I mean, if you really think about how ridiculous that is, every single person on this planet is made in the image of God. And I want you to know something. Education is not going to fix hatred. It doesn't. We can, we can drop pamphlets out of helicopters all over the culture, all over the country, saying, look, hey, let's, let's, let's know each other. The fact is, our heart is broken. You need to know, as a church family, we as pastors, we long to see greater racial diversity in our body. And the reason we long for that is, one, it's because there is equality. We're all made in the image of God. But second, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus Christ is glorified. There's an entire chapter on race. Ephesians chapter, you go, that's not a, that's not a, no, actually it is. He, he talks about how Jews and Gentiles, different races, who look at their physical skin and where they grew up and things like this as dividing marks. And what he says, think about how Jesus will be glorified if people who look different but are really the same, all created by God, all come together and they worship the one true God, Jesus Christ. You see, knowledge doesn't fix these things. And the reason is because our minds are not empty. We think, like the plan of education is the mind is empty, we need to fill it with good. The problem is the mind is not empty. The Bible says it's full of deceit and pride and lust, hatred and hostility to God's authority. And this fullness spills out socially and relationally. See, personal and social transformation only comes when the mind is renewed. And you say, well... Where's the Holy Spirit in this? What's well, interesting that this phrase, this word renewed, it's only used in this form in one other place in the whole Bible. And it's in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. And this is what it says there. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, this new life, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now listen. It's the Spirit who renews the mind. It's decisively His work. Christianity is not a willpower religion. It doesn't work that way. Christianity is, I'm going to yield and believe in Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust Him. And I'm going to pray, as He said would happen, that when I believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is going to come, live within my heart, and bear fruit that I cannot bear on my own of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when these fruits are being born in our life, what happens is these instructions become doable. These things all of a sudden become areas where we grow distinct as a people. You see, Christian behavior is the overflow of a new mind and a new heart. It's created by the Holy Spirit. So two, 
two applications, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The first is this. I would just exhort, if anyone here has never trusted Christ, and you're trying to white-knuckle your marriage, or you're trying to white-knuckle your heart to stop doing things that cause you guilt, I would beg you, trust Christ today as your Savior and be filled with His Spirit. You trust Christ, and He says He will fill you with His Spirit, and you will have a new resource. Not only will He forgive you, but He'll be able to do things in you. He'll give you new motivations and inclinations in your heart, so you're going to start wanting to do things differently. Not perfectly, but, but persistently. And the second thing is, for those of us who have trusted Christ, I would encourage us, let's pray that God would renew our minds by the power of the Holy Spirit. That as we're studying the scriptures, and you're going to life class, and you're studying what we're doing right now, that we would take this scripture, and we'd say, God, would you by your power, not by my power, would you, would you help me to apply this in my life and bear these fruits in my life? This is what we're praying for. You see, it's the mercy of God. It's trusting God. It's the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is the privilege of the Lord's Supper, which, which uh, we'll, we'll now take. And so all the, um, all the guys that will be serving us, if uh, you would come at this time, that would be wonderful. But um, this morning, what we get to do is to glorify Jesus by remembering his mercy. By remembering his mercy that was poured out to us through this. And so under these, these things, if you've never seen this before, there's, some, there's a cup and there's, and there's bread. And the bread is symbolic of the body of Christ and the cup is symbolic of the blood of Christ that was, that was shed. They both speak of Jesus' mercy for us. You see, Jesus told his followers to take this bread and cup as a reminder of the cross, but also as a confession of faith. And so you need to know this, okay? When it's passed, if you take this cup and hold that bread in your hand, you were publicly, silently, but publicly confessing a few things. If you take this, you're confessing to anyone who would look upon you, I am a sinner and I know it, and my sin has separated me from God. But you're also confessing that you're believing that Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection is the hope that you have of of how God is going to deal with your sin. And so it's a it's a declaration, not only of our faith in Jesus, but also of our personal need for that Savior. So if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, then we welcome you here at Providence to partake of what's being passed. But if you have not yet trusted Christ, we would ask that you would just respectfully let those pass. Because to take them is to affirm them. Okay? And so, uh, and so on that night, what we're told is that Jesus, when he installed this Lord's Supper, he prayed. And so if you would bow and let's pray together. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we come to you now with such a strong sense of humility because we don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve what you did for us. We're so thankful, Heavenly Father, that, that when you look at us you don't, for righteousness, you don't look at us and what we did and how we live but you look at Christ and his shed blood. As we sang earlier, your blood poured out, our sin erased. What an amazing truth that is. So we thank you that you've given us the opportunity to celebrate your death, burial, and resurrection, that we celebrate, Lord, what you did for us, the sacrifice, your body broken, your blood shed. Help us to focus on that now. Help us to truly 
internalize and understand that truth that you shed your blood for us so that we could have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. So we thank you for that. And Lord, we just pray now you'll speak to us as we celebrate this together. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.